This morning we come to Psalm 90. We've had this little mini-series within the the series on the Psalms uh, about the coming king. And at first glance, Psalm 90 might not quite seem to fit into that pattern. But I hope to be able to show uh, to you that it, uh, that it actually does. It gives us great hope and comfort uh, as we anticipate and, and long for the coming king. So Psalm 90 is before us. Let me read it always. The very word of the living God. Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So ends the reading of God's infallible, inerrant, holy word. May he read it upon our hearts here this morning as we come before it. Let me pray for us once again. Our Father in heaven, as we come before your word, we ask that you would fulfill the promise that you yourself have made, that it goes out and does not return to you void. Instead, it accomplishes what you purpose for it. And it's successful and the things for which you send it. May that be true here this morning. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the things that you would have us learn. Make your word a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, so that we may walk according to where it shines and leads us to go. This we ask in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, it might seem a little bit odd, at least it did at first to me, as I was studying and reading and thinking about this psalm, I got to thinking about Galatians. And specifically, I got to thinking about Paul's anger in the book of Galatians. Paul is 
extremely angry in Galatians. Now this is the first book that I preached through here at, at Mission Presbyterian. And we discussed that anger of Paul at length then, and it's come up occasionally from time to time since then. You know, if there were a version of, uh, you know, a, a Paul the Apostle, Mr. Potato Head, Galatians would be the book where he puts in his angry eyes. He's angry. But why is he angry? Why in the world is Paul so upset? Well, remember the, the circumstances surrounding the letter. There were those who had been teaching and, and getting the Galatian Christians to believe and to practice that Gentiles had to follow all of the Jewish law to be saved, to be acceptable before God. This included, of course, things like circumcision for the men. And, and Paul is so upset that he doesn't mince any words. Our translations sometimes try to make it sound a little bit less guttural or, or, or harsh than it is. <clears throat> But he tells them, if you're going to practice circumcision, just go ahead and cut the whole thing off, to put it in modern lingo. And he goes on to re-emphasize what he taught them and what they seem to have forgotten, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, without adding any of the works of the law, without adding any obedience of our own. So again, why is Paul so angry? Because they got their theology wrong? Because they got their practice wrong? That's kind of an easy place for us to go because that's often what makes us angry. All oh, those lousy people over there with their bad theology. Look at what those people do. They should be doing this, they're doing that. Or vice versa. They're doing that and they should be doing this. And we get angry about that stuff when we fight and debate. Now, Doctrinal error needs to be fixed. Bad practices need to be improved. But that's not why Paul is so angry. I am convinced that Paul's angry because there is an attitude behind what's going on in the Galatian churches and what the false teachers are teaching. And that attitude is this. Jesus Christ's work for our salvation is not enough. It's not enough. It gets us started. But it's not enough. I have to add something to it to be truly saved. I've got to add my own good works. And it's as if the, the people in Galatia are looking God in the face and just slapping him. What you did in sending your son was great, but it wasn't enough. It was incomplete. It was a good start, but, you know, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish things now. And Paul sees that, I think, for what it is. It's an insult to God. It's blasphemy. Telling God that what he has done for us isn't enough. Isn't adequate. How, how dare anybody behave that way before God? But that's, in effect, what they were doing. They'd insulted God and turned away from faith to dependence upon themselves. There's other events like this in Scripture as well. Think of Jesus cleansing the temple. The business of trade was wrong. Jesus called them robbers or thieves. 
But deeper than that sin was, again, the insult to God. They had gone into his very house, the place where God was to be worshipped, what Jesus called a house of prayer, to do common business. Again, an insult to God, an insult to God and to his house and to his holiness. Think of David with Goliath. David is astonished when he goes out to take food to his brothers that no one will go out and face this giant Goliath. David goes out to face him, not because God is giving us a story about how to face our own giants in life, Go out and face your own Goliath. That's not the point of the story. David goes out because, well, Goliath is insulting the armies of the living God. And God himself. And David is absolutely firm, unshakable in his faith. That God will keep his promises to protect his people. To deliver them from their enemies. To give them victory to not let them come under the power of a foreign ruler. David goes out not because he thinks he can beat a giant, but because he knows God will, because God won't stand for the insult. Or go back even further to Moses and the golden calf. God himself is angry at first, and Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. But then Moses himself comes down the mountain And as Aaron sees him, Aaron sees the anger of Moses. Again, why is Moses so angry? Making a golden calf is certainly a sin. It's an idol. But think back to the story. What was at the root of that request? That act of making an idol. The people went to Aaron and said, Give us gods. For what purpose? Give us gods to go before us, to lead us, to guide us. Where's Moses? He disappeared up a mountain, brought us out here into the wilderness, left us here to die. Give us gods to lead us out of this place. Yes, the golden calf was idolatry, but really the problem was in their own hearts, insulting God, the God who had brought them out of Egypt with a strong and mighty arm shown them plagues, brought them through the sea on dry land, led them with a pillar of cloud and of fire. The people insulted God, a stiff-necked people. So what we see in these, these examples, I think, is God insulted, God blasphemed against when people forget who he is and what he's done and what he's promised to do always accompanied by some measure of lack of faith and and looking in some way to one's own efforts to get things done. Either to earn something, in in the case of the Galatians, or in fear, David and Goliath, all those men were afraid. He's bigger than we are. The guy's nine feet tall. Or to make our own gods that we want to follow as in the case of Moses and the golden calf. Moses, of course, brings us back to Psalm 90, the only psalm in the Psalter written by Moses. A prayer of Moses, it says, the man of God. What does 
Psalm 90 have to do with those examples I've given from Scripture? Well, at the simplest level, Psalm 90 is a reminder, just don't go there. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't insult God. Don't lose faith, but remember His faithfulness and His sovereign care. But deeper than that, the placement of Psalm 90 in the Psalter, where it is among the 150 Psalms, and right after Psalm 89, is, I think, no coincidence. Remember, Psalm 89 reflects the deep longing for a king. Ethan the Ezraite, hundreds of years after Moses, hundreds of years after David, writes this psalm and says, Where is the son of David that you promised? How long, O Lord? How long is it going to take? Where is this son? Bless us, Lord. May you be blessed. But where is this son? Psalm 90 reminds Israel, Ethan the Ezraite, it reminds us that God is the true king. The true king who has always ruled and always will rule his people. And so Psalm 90 is an answer to the longing of Psalm 89. I want to look at the psalm just structurally this morning, the, the things that it teaches And then consider that placement, where it is in the Psalter and how that helps us understand how it relates to this promise of a coming king and its fulfillment. So let's look at the psalm first. Again, it's the only psalm of Moses. It's not the only song, though, of Moses that we have in Scripture. We have a song that Moses sang in Exodus 15, uh, right after the crossing of the Red Sea, a psalm of praise uh, to God. And then in Deuteronomy 32, uh, prior to his death, he sings a song to the people of Israel, basically warning them about how wicked and sinful and rebellious they are and warning them against the judgment to come. We don't know when Psalm 90 was written in Moses' life. There's a lot of speculation and, and guesswork about that. I wasn't particularly convinced about any of it. So, and I don't think it matters really in the end. The content of the psalm is what matters. It begins with uh, a declaration, a kind of a reminder of the majesty and glory of God, of His transcendence. Think, or look at verse 2 in particular. Before there was anything, before there were mountains, before the earth was formed, Moses acknowledges, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is the same idea as the I am that God spoke to Moses. You are God. You just are. From everlasting to everlasting. And so in verse 1, every generation can take refuge in Him. He can be their dwelling place. God is a safe and a secure home for His people. Then the psalm continues with a comparison of God and man. The creator-creature distinction. God transcendent Man, finite, even though he's the pinnacle of God's creation, he's frail and weak. Man returns to the dust from which he was made in verse 3. And this is God's command. It doesn't just happen. God commands, return, O children of man. 
to the dust from which you came. And then we see that for God, time is, well, time is a non-factor because God created time and he exists outside of time. So we can see in verses 4 to 6, or 4 especially about God himself, that a thousand years are, are like yesterday, gone quickly, or even a watch in the night. How long does a watch in the night last? Four hours? Six hours? It's a short period of time. Whatever the case, you know, we we go back to Peter, which we read earlier. A thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. But Moses goes even a little bit further. A thousand years is like, I don't know, four, five, six hours. A thousand years to God is nothing. Time does not constrain him. Man, by contrast, as we see in the following verses, 5 and 6, is fragile. We're swept away like a flood. We're like a dream. Most of us dream at night, and if, if we can even remember it when we wake up, it's fleeting. It passes. Oh, I wish I could, re- I had a really, wish I could remember that dream. It was, and then it's gone. We're like grass. Renewed in the morning, flourished, but then fades and withers by evening. This is something that would have been pretty, uh, a great illustration for people in, in, in uh, the promised land. A, cold, or a climate very much like ours, actually, where the dew might rise up in the morning, cover the grass, it kind of perks up a little bit and maybe turns a little bit green, but... The sun comes up and begins to beat down on it, and by evening it's all dry and brown and withered up. That's man compared to God. Nothing. Dry. Like a passing dream. Like nothing. Then verses 7 to 11 remind us of God's attitude toward our sin. And it's not positive. Consequences of our sin and of our iniquity. We're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We can't hide not one sin from God. What's a secret sin to us, you don't know all of my sins, are in the light of God's presence. He sees them. And he's angry about them. We're brought to an end because of his anger for our sins. We're dismayed by his wrath when our sins are found out by him. Think of Adam and Eve cowering in the garden, trying to hide. In verse 9, our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. We're, We're nothing. Your wrath consumes us. What are we saved from again? from God's wrath because of our sin. The punishment is death. What do we live in verses 9 and 10? 70 years, maybe? 80 if we're strong? Our lives are short. Our lives are over quickly, and what they are is not very pleasant. They're toil. They're trouble. 
So who considers this? Who considers the power of your anger, your wrath, according to the fear of you? That's a way of saying we should consider God's wrath. We should be aware of his anger for sin. Have a respectful awe of him and how he treats us. Come before him in fear and repentance. Psalm in verses 12 to 17 begins to reflect the proper attitude as a number of requests in it. It begins in verse 12 with a request to teach us to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. Now the goal there isn't to know how long we're going to live <laughs> and then count down to the end. All right, there's one more gone, one more gone, one more gone. The goal, rather, is to understand how finite we are, that the number of our days is limited, and to be wise because of that. Those of us who are older feel the reality of this truth more keenly than those who are younger, because we know our days are short and getting shorter. And maybe that's one of the reasons why elders are are typically wiser. Part of it is life experience, part of it is taking time to learn and, and understand things. But part of it, I think, is just realizing how short our remaining days are. And that brings a different perspective. Something I didn't understand five or ten years ago, but it's becoming much more keenly a part of my awareness. Helps us to focus on what matters, especially it relates, as it relates to God and the things of God. Teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom begins with turning to God and finding in Him our joy. And so we seek God to return, we ask God to return to us, to have pity on us. Thinking again of, of our sin, our iniquity, and that God's anger for it. Rather than satisfy ourselves with our sins, satisfy us with your steadfast love, your covenant love, so that we might rejoice and be glad all of our days. That's the request from the heart of someone who fears God rightly, has his days numbered and knows their end, understands the wrath of God, and knows that true joy is found in his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, <laughs> for as many years as we have seen evil. Kind of a, an odd request. The days you've given us are kind of crummy. You've afflicted us with these days. We're going to see evil these years that we have to live. But nevertheless, in the midst of that evil, in the midst of that sorrow, make us glad. You make us glad. You make us glad in you and your steadfast love. Be satisfied in him. Are we satisfied with God? Does God satisfy you in your longings and your desires? Is that enough for you? See, that's part of what's going on with the Galatians and with the people in the temple and with the, the army of God before Goliath and the people out there below the, the mountain. 
they're not satisfied in God. They want something more. Or they're afraid of earthly consequences. God is not enough. And that's an insult to God. And so Moses rightly says in verse 14, Satisfy us with you. Satisfy us with your steadfast love. If you're not satisfied in God, there's danger that you're insulting God and risking his anger, as we saw in verses 7, 9, and and 11. Verse 16 is, is a wonderful request. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. We love to see the power of God. Lots of people today want to see a miracle. Show me a miracle. Let me see the power of God on display. This is a a huge part of what drives the charismatic movement. But too often we turn to that instead of the power that God has shown to us in his very word. It begins with creation itself. He's the one who brought the mountains forth. He's the one who formed the earth. And then story after story, example after example in God's word of his mighty work over and over and over again on behalf of his people, saving them, protecting them, watching over them, leading them, guiding them, all leading up to the crowning work, raising his own son from death to life. After that same son served as an atoning sacrifice, for all the sins of all of his people. <laughs> you want glorious power? Look to Christ. Look to what Jesus has done. The author, the finisher of our faith. Remember his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. The powerful transformation that he works in us by the power of his spirit. Taking sinners from death to life. Renewing us and transforming us and changing us giving us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, exchanging our sin for his righteousness, empowering us to obey him in holiness. That's power. Taking evil men and women and children and renewing them after himself. The psalm ends in a very powerful way as well. A powerful request in verse 16 Another powerful request in verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. A double request. We don't see things repeated in Scripture for no reason. This is another one of the longings of our heart to have some sort of relevance and meaning beyond our own lives. We want relevance. People around us talk about leaving the world in a better place than they found it, or passing on good things to their children, or improving life in the world. Moses knows, though, and he's teaching us that this is impossible without the favor of the Lord God upon us. It's him who gives our work relevance and meaning. So it must be work that he commends, work that he commands the works of of teaching others about him, of raising our children in the way that they should go, of seeing others come to faith and of discipling them in that faith, 
of being salt and light to those around us, of helping the poor and the needy and showing compassion to those around us, even to our enemies. It's important that we do these things. And this is what brings relevance and meaning to our lives. So what we have in Psalm 90 is Moses teaching the sovereign, transcendent God who's justly angry about our sin and will punish it by death. But a God who also provides meaning for the life that we live. Without the meaning that God provides, it's verse 15 again. Days that afflict us and years that see evil. But with God bringing meaning, there's satisfaction and there's gladness and there's joy and meaning in life. This is a psalm that's often preached at funerals, and understandably so. It reminds us of the reality of death and the the frailty of human life and its fleeting nature. But Psalm 90 teaches about more than death. It teaches about how to live as well. Living in recognition that God is sovereign, and he makes life meaningful if it's lived by faith in him. So, Some quick lessons here as we think about the psalm. This life lived in faith and looking to God for meaning, of being satisfied in Him, of finding joy and gladness in Him, is how we can begin to see how this life, this psalm fits in with the other psalms that we've looked at. What this psalm teaches us as much as anything is how to wait. Psalm 45, we saw a love song for the king. Psalm 72, a prayer for the ideal king to come. And then in Psalm 89, that plaintive cry, where is the king? You promised the king, God, where is he? Where is the son of David? How does this fit with Psalm 90? Well, let me briefly remind us of the structure of the Psalms. You've got first Psalms 1 and 2, two kinds of people in the world, the righteous and the wicked, at war. Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And book 1, Psalms 1 to 41, is largely about the righteous. Book 2, from Psalms 42 to 72, is largely about the conflict between the righteous and the wicked. Book 3, Psalms 73 to 89, is mainly about life in this world. Celebrating joys, but also laments raised up to God. You might have noticed in your Bibles that before Psalm 90, it says book 4. Psalms 90 to 106 are a celebration of God as king. Contained right in the middle of it are the uh, so-called sovereign songs, psalms, the the psalms of of God's sovereignty, 93 to 100. And then the last book is how to live life with God as king, giving him praise. So no, Psalm 72 ends book two, the prayer for a king to rule. Psalm 89 ends book 3. Where is that king? How long till he comes? And then Psalm 90 can be seen as the beginning of the answer in book 4. God is the king. And before David existed, and long after David is gone, David is, or God is king. And Psalm 90 ties back with Psalm 2. Psalm 90 reminds us of God's anger for sin and death as a punishment of it. Well, that's not all that different from what Psalm 2 says. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. 
What does that tell us? Put Psalm 2 and Psalm 90 together. The Son is God. Who else punishes the wicked with death for rejecting him? Only God does that. Psalm 90 tells us to look to God as our king, but also, if we keep Psalm 2 in mind, to expect that king to be God himself, that divine son to be our king. So here's the connection. That promised son of David, which Psalm 89 is looking for, is no longer just a son of David, but God himself. Even in the Psalms, we can see what we've been talking about and reading about in the definition of Chalcedon. Fully God and fully man. Psalm 89 expresses the longing for that son. We know he came. Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary by the power of the Spirit. Talked about last week how the time from David to Jesus' birth is almost a thousand years. But God has also made a promise to us to send the Son back to us to consummate His kingdom, to finally judge all of the wicked, to usher in the new heavens and the new earth as we read about in Second Peter 3. No more conflict, no more pain, no more sorrow. But when? Again, the cry of Psalm 89 is ours. When is this going to happen? How long, O Lord, until you make this happen? It's been 2,000 years. How much longer do we have to wait? What does Psalm 90 tell us? For God, a 1,000 years is, is like yesterday. It's like a watch in the night. Peter reminds us that God is not slow, as some count slowness. Why is God taking so long? Peter tells us it's because God is patient. He doesn't want any to perish. He's giving a full opportunity for repentance. But the king is coming, Peter says, like a thief in the night, unexpected, when you can't predict it, you can't control it. We don't know when it's coming not according to our timetable. Tonight could be too late. Don't believe? Repent before it is too late. You do believe? (laughs) Be patient. It's not our job to predict Jesus is coming. Psalm 90 calls upon us to be satisfied in God. Be satisfied in God as our King. Be satisfied in Jesus as our Savior and as our King. Be glad in Him. Rejoice in Him. Do the work that He's given you to do. And be satisfied in that work. And find meaning in that work. There is a request to see great things. We have seen great things that God has done for us. And I think it's entirely right and proper to remember year in and year out that great work that God did in sending His Son to be a tiny baby 2,000 years ago. But as we remember that, we remember as well that he was born for a purpose. To live and die and rise again for our salvation. To ascend to the right hand of the Father, where he rules. And from whence he shall come, to judge the living and the dead. So again, we've looked at Psalm 45, a love song about Jesus as our king. Psalm 72, a prayer about Jesus as our ideal, perfect king. 
Psalm 89 expresses our love and our longing for that king to return to us. Psalm 90 reminds us he has always ruled. And in the meantime, while we wait, we live our lives in in the light of that rule, that reign of God. And we patiently wait and work until that promised day comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, first of all, we do ask that you would uh, remove other things that compete for our love and our attention and our joy. Remove those from our heart so that our hearts might be satisfied in you and in you alone. And see these other things that we have in life as, as blessings added on. That you are filling our cup to overflowing. That you are gracious and loving and merciful toward us. That you have given us many, many good things. But Christ is all and in all and fills all. May we find our satisfaction and our joy and our gladness and our meaning in life in him and as we serve him. Teach us these things. We cannot do them on our own. We need to be reminded of these things. Do so and do so so that we might uh, turn our hearts more and more to you and so that we might be able to be uh, salt and light to those around us. We ask it all in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.